Our New Testament lesson, however, is drawn from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, beginning around verse 11, and extending into chapter 2, verse 10. I knew something was wrong. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came from the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But no other of the apostles did I see except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning these things which I write to you, indeed, before God I do not lie. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them what gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only desired that we remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Last Lord's Day, 
The agenda of my sermon, and really every sermon has an agenda, a sermon without a point is pointless, the major agenda of my sermon was that I wanted you to realize Paul of Tarsus was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was no mere theologian, no mere uh, evangelist, although there have been superb evangelists and there have been superb theologians. Saul of Tarsus was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that meant he was a personal representative from him. The term apostle was highly loaded. The ancient world understood what it meant. And when Paul was an apostle, it meant when he taught, he taught for Jesus Christ what Jesus Christ wanted taught. He was the literal mouthpiece of Jesus Christ, and that's why his ministry is important. Paul himself emphasized, and I wanted you to see, that in what he writes, he says very clearly, the gospel that I preach was given to me by God. It was not invented by man. It wasn't invented by me. It wasn't invented by any mere man. And I am not from men or sent by man. Although, again, those things aren't bad, but Paul isn't that. He is directly from Jesus Christ. And my, my final goal of that sermon was for you to see very clearly all of this was in Scripture. You could read it for yourself. Looking at the page of the Bible, it was found in the very Holy Scriptures, and you would know it to be there. And the reason why that was my major agenda is because I know who you are. We are Protestants, true Protestants, and a true Protestant has a highest authority. For a Protestant, the written scriptures, the Holy Bible, is our Pope. Romanists look at us and they say, you have a paper Pope. And I'll own that. I have a paper Pope. Uh, the way Jeff put it during the week was, we are under the papacy, and I've been thinking about that ever since. Um, the highest authority for the Protestant Christian is the very Word of God, and we are looking at that. This is the Scripture. It is the highest authority. I put before you, the Scripture said it, and I know that for you, that's what's going to stick. Because as a Protestant, the Scripture is the top. There are other authorities in the world, but the Scripture says it, we believe it, and that settles it. And I wanted you to walk out of the, the building on the Lord's Day saying, I know the Scripture says this, Therefore, it is. The original hearer of Paul's letter uh, honestly should have been of that kind of persuasion, but they specifically were not. And in fact, the fact that they were not is one of the major reasons why this letter was written. As Paul takes up his pen and is guided by the Spirit, he is effectively writing to two groups of people in Galatia, both of which are not on the solid foundation I just described at all. You have Paul's competitors 
and you have the audience for Paul's competitors, and sola scriptura is about the last thing on their minds. All over the Mediterranean world, the apostles encountered competitors. The ancient Roman world was filled with teachers, with various titles, speaking from philosophical and religious points of view, and if you think it is confusing to live in our world where you have the cacophony of, of doctrine, uh, our world basically matches the first century, where if you were a first century person, you could hear 10 different gospels before you got home for lunch. And the, the audience of Paul's letter are not willing to just immediately say, okay, this is the high authority of God, because the competitors are on site, and they are working from the point of view that to the victor goes the spoils, there's a lot of voices, and we're the best. The, the false teachers at uh, Galatia were not the false teachers that you found in Corinth, but the spirit of them can be described in the words of 2 Corinthians where Paul was dealing with false teachers there. Beginning in chapter 10, Paul begins to kind of talk to his competitors there, and we read, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Dropping to verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again in himself, that just as he is in Christ, even so we are in Christ. For even if I should boast something more about our authority, which the Lord has given us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you with letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. But let such person consider this, that what we are by letters when we are absent, such we will be by deed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. But we will not boast above measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere reaching even to you. He's good behind a pen. He's powerful writing. But we are super apostles, they would say. And actually, the NIV uses that very phrase in 2 Corinthians, and it's a pretty accurate translation at that point. Uh, the, the Judaizers in Galatia are saying, you know, Paul's not 
as good a minister as we are, we are more charismatic in presentation, we're, we're, we're ahead of him, and you should switch from him to us, because look at us. We are great, wonderful religious teachers, we know more than he does, we are the super spiritual, we are above Paul. Paul actually got his gospel from the 12 of Jerusalem, you know. He's actually in league with them. And the 12 from Jerusalem, the original apostles, uh, they knew something in their day, sure, and they even walked with Jesus of Nazareth. But we know better than those 12 from Jerusalem. And Paul is just really commissioned by them. He has been sent from them. He is teaching their gospel. But it's a subpar gospel. We're actually the cutting edge. Now, that is very clearly going on in Galatia as well as it was in Corinth. And the significance of what that says to us, we're going to look at here in a few minutes. But for right now, you just need to know the false teachers are not thinking at all about sola scriptura, the authority of apostles, not at all. They're in competition. And they are competing in the minds of the churchmen in Galatia And the churchmen have just read this letter, and their feeling about what Paul has said may have some real cynicism to it. You claim that you speak for Christ. You claim that Christ appeared to you in some sort of actual physical manifestation and that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the real Jesus, who is not walking among us at the moment in body, he appeared to you and gave you your message. Uh, You claim not to be sent by man or for man. You claim to be something totally different than most teachers. Uh, And not only that, you claim the right to say something unpopular. And that may be the biggest generator of cynicism in their minds. In verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul has said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Men don't like to be offended. They get offended by it. And uh, it may be the worst sin of Paul in their minds. How dare you tell us what we don't want to hear? Who do you think you are? Now, you have said that Jesus appeared to you. You have said that you get your gospel from him. Well, pull the other one. It is very easy to say those things. You have said them. But what is the evidence you will present? How how will you demonstrate to us that you're not just lying to us? Well, to surprise some people really dramatically, Paul actually presents evidence. Look at the relationship between verse 11 and 12 to verse 13. The claim is in 11 to 12. 
But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for, and the word for means because, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. So verse 12 relates to verse 11 in that Paul is explaining why he can say it's not the gospel of man. And then in verse 13, Paul begins the verse with the word for again, which means because. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So Paul hears their cynical questions mentally, and he says, I teach directly from Jesus, and you can know that. There is evidence for this. Let me tell you what it is. Now, you remember what kind of person I was, right? Well, what kind of person am I now? Paul begins to describe himself in verse 13 through 14, and it's an amazing description. It is both terrifying and something that we would be abhorred at, but it's also, in a way, kind of something you would admire. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul says, remember the old Paul? I, I tried to kill you. And I actually got away with it, sort of. I, I, I did it. I hated the church of God. I hated it to the point where I was willing to, to destroy it. And it's made of people, so I'm willing to destroy people. Uh, religiously, I was very ambitious. I was a Jew, and I was growing in the ranks of Judaism, and I was good at it. When you considered young men of my age and their advancement in religious things, I was outpacing them greatly. And the one thing that really set my heart on fire, the thing that I loved, the thing that I grabbed hold of, and was for me my highest authority, that was the traditions of my fathers. Now that's a very significant thing Paul says. He doesn't say, my, my great joy was the scriptures of God. Judaism carried those, kind of like the PCUSA carries the confessions. But what was really the authority in Judaism was the teachings of the rabbis, the traditions of the elders, uh, ultimately, these things, once they are written down at JAMA about 40 years, 50 years after this, will take up an entire bookshelf. And Paul was zealous for tradition. What our fathers developed, what they did traditionally, I loved it, and I was willing to kill people and destroy people to maintain that. What Paul is describing is what we would call a zealot, a true uh, soldier for the cause, a man hardened against any other uh, alternatives, and 
a, a, a loving disciple of the mission. As I said, such a man can be both uh, very disturbing and also kind of admirable all at once. You don't run into people who are this dedicated that often. And when you do, there's kind of a little bit something there to respect because most people aren't sold out to nothing except themselves. Paul was sold out. He was sold out to a mission, uh, but it was a terrible one. It was one that stood out against the face of God. That kind of person doesn't change. They don't flutter. They don't go back and forth between opinions. They are rock solid. They are going to carry out the mission. They are going to see it through. They are going to take whatever sort of hit they have to take to be loyal to what they're doing. This is a hardened, hardened man. And those kind of people don't change except this one did. Paul brings up his, his former way of life. It was well known, and nobody who knew this zealous, ambitious young man would expect him to be what he is now at all. He has had an A180 of life. He is doing the exact opposite of what he was doing. There has been a change in him. And when you get to verse 15 in the first part of 16, he tells you what happened. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, that's when I changed. Somebody got a hold of me, somebody shook me up, and man couldn't have done that. I was a hardened conspirator. I was a destroyer of the church. I was 100% set in my ways. And God shook me till my teeth rattled. A man like me wouldn't be a man like me now if something dramatic, something divine had not gotten in his way and just absolutely blown me off the tracks. Why can I say that Jesus appeared before me and my words are Jesus's? Well, it's because it's the truth. I've actually been in the presence of Christ. He knocked me off my horse. He struck me blind. He appeared to me. He talked to me. He told me what to say. And this kind of change doesn't come from humanity. It has to be something much bigger. What Paul is describing is repentance. Now, the word does not appear in our text, but the phenomena is very much here. To repent means to turn and do an A180 in what you're doing. We tend to think of repentance as, I suddenly realize I'm a bad person, and I weep over what I've been, and it gets me right here, and I'm really sorry. And that is part of repentance. But the main definition of repentance is you turn 180 degrees around and you start doing the opposite. If you're just the drunk who every morning cries about who he is and then gets drunk in the evening, you've not repented, you're just kind of sad. 
But repentance is really doing something different, and Paul is describing it, and in so doing, he is showing us the relation of repentance to the gospel. You do not repent to gain the gospel. Rather, the gospel takes hold of you, the power of God takes hold of you, and then you repent. Compare, if you will, um, a man who did, in fact, cry and feel very sad, as opposed to Paul. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, no, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse um, 14 through 17, Paul describes, well, the writer to Hebrews describes Esau, and we read this. He conjoins us to be holy. He says, Pursue peace with all men in holiness, which out which no one will see the Lord, looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and by this many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. And he introduces Esau here, and he tells us about Esau and Esau's uh, relationship to repentance. Lest there be any profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Why was he rejected? Well, for he found no place for repentance. So Esau didn't repent. And the writer seems to indicate if he did repent, he might receive the blessing, but he doesn't repent, although he sought repentance diligently with tears. He cried. He wept. He was desiring to be repentant, but he was not repentant. He was not really wanting to turn from his sins. He was wanting to want to turn from his sins, but that's not repentance. Whereas the Apostle Paul describes himself in verse 22 through 24, and there Paul describes himself as, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So Esau wept, cried, felt bad about himself, did not turn, and he, quote, found no place for repentance. Paul does an A180, and he uh, establishes the church he tried to destroy, he preaches the Christ he hated. He does what God wants him to do. And that is repentance, and that's the right place for it. Spiritually dead men can't re repent. If you go tell a man who is outside of Christ and outside of his grace, and the Holy Spirit is not working with him, you need to repent, well, you've told the truth. He does. But he's not going to, because there's nothing in him to make him do it. He may get sad, he may really wish he was something different, but he won't be different, 
unless the gospel gets a hold of him. And if the gospel does, then he will. Consider the most famous passage of the gospel, uh, certainly in Reformed circles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, there in the beginning of it, you start off a slave of Satan who is living in you. You start off addicted to sin. You start off a, a dead man. Uh, you're a child of wrath. There, there's, there's nothing good in you. And then in verse 4 through 9, God does something. You don't do it. God does it, and it's because he is merciful and he is gracious. He does something in Jesus Christ, and you change. And then at the last verse of that passage, then you are able to live out the, the good works which God has uh, predestined you to walk in beforehand. Good works, doing things, comes up in this presentation of the gospel, but it comes up at the end because at the beginning, it would be nonsensical. You're possessed by the devil, and um, you're addicted to sin, and you're spiritually dead, and when God looks at you, he sees someone who, by nature, he has to have wrath on, but you should do good works. It's not going to happen. It comes in verse 10. For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourself, uh, it is the gift of God. You've been saved by the gift of faith, and you have been saved to do the good works which God has predestined you to do beforehand. This is what Paul is saying is happening to him. I was on my way to destroy the church. I hated all of you. My, my hate was so hi, I'd put a sword through you. But God had predestined me to be his man before I was born. And this was the time where he was going to do it. And let me tell you, he did it. He took hold of me. He shook me around. He knocked me blind. And I am now literally 100% different than I used to be because of what he did and logically, you have to look at me and say, you know, that's a pretty good point. I don't think you could be this otherwise. So Paul presents evidence of what he's saying. The evidence is, look at how I've changed. Ah, says Paul's opponents, we'll acknowledge he's a different man, but uh, does it really take men, does it really take God to make men different? Maybe very charismatic men could have gotten a hold of him. I mean, that happens. Somebody messed around his mind and took him into their fold, and now he is from those men and by those men. And of course, we're talking about the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. That's really, says Paul's opponents, why he's different. He has received the, the philosophy of men. It's the philosophy we're competing with. We're competing with the Jerusalem 12, and he's just another guy on their team. And they changed him. Well, Paul answers that question in our passage too. Look at the things he says as our passage goes along. Verse 15 through 17. 
But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Didn't do it. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul says, you may think that we're just a competing philosophy, and I learned my philosophy from other men, but the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ who were based out of Jerusalem, I didn't go see them. Um, In fact, I went way away from where they were. I went to Arabia, and I finally came back to Damascus. Now, when I got back three years after my conversion... Uh, I did go see them, Paul says, and in verse 18 through 20, he says this, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I remained with him 15 days, but no other of the apostles did I see except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. So, yeah, I met him, and I talked to him for a little while but not at a level where uh, I'm receiving from them my marching orders. And by the way, I have to use an oath before your face to make you realize I'm not lying. I call God as my witness that this is what has happened. When do you, when do you take an oath? When do you say, now God is watching And God will strike me if I'm lying. God is my witness. When do you do that? Well, um, if you're a really profane person, you may do it before breakfast. But if you're a sane person, you don't take an oath before the face of God and say, God is the judge here in this case, unless it is really, really important and your audience needs that to realize how important it is. The people of Galatia, uh, you know, they've been told by these false teachers, Paul is on the side of Peter and James and John. That's a competing idea. Uh, We're a competing idea. We're better. Uh, Paul says, you know, I didn't get this from them, and I call God to watch, to to say that's true. Moving on to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Then after 14 years after my conversion... Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, with, with, yeah. and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul says, now, we did confer... But it was 14 years after I started preaching, and um, I wanted to compare notes with them at that time, but I had 14 years of ministry beforehand. And uh, they heard, and uh, you know, it wasn't because I needed to do this. In verse 6, Paul says something that kind of strikes the reader Uh, You wonder how he can say this. He's talking about the leaders of Jerusalem and the church, and he doesn't seem uh, that different. But of those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. 
for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. So Paul says two things here of, of significance. One is the leadership of the Church of Jerusalem, including the apostles, um, they didn't have any quibbles. So we're on the same page, it's true. But even though I was looking at Peter, James, and John, that did not intimidate me, and I didn't suddenly say, yes, sir, because this is God's work we're doing, and when God looks down on men, he doesn't see a lot of difference among men. God honors no man, and God brought me into ministry, and when I looked at the other apostles, I just saw other men, because that's how God sees us. I wasn't lockstepping with the 12 apostles. They rather acknowledged what I was teaching and said that this is what we teach too. We have the same message. Or to put it in Paul's words, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me and the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul says, you're partly right. Yeah, I'm on the same page as the twelve. But it's not because they turned me. God turned me, just as God had turned them, in fact. And, yeah, we're on the same page because this is God's gospel. Um, this actually speaks to a theological issue that comes up every now and then, a heresy very similar in some ways to the heresy we looked at last week. Last week, you saw liberals wanting to separate Jesus from Paul here, you're going to see conservatives do it the same way. You'll have men say, now, Jesus and the Twelve were Jewish. They were about Jewish things, and they were pursuing Jewish things. But Paul actually took Western philosophy, and he united that to a kind of Jewish message, sort of. But he really Westernized it. And so, real Christianity is Jewish. You should pursue Jewish traditions. You should try to figure out if you have Jewish blood. Uh, Paul changed it. Paul's opponents in Galatia said the exact opposite. They said, we are in opposition to the Twelve in Jerusalem, and Paul is just some guy who just says exactly the same thing. Now think about that testimony. The twelve say, I say the same thing. This modern heresy says, Paul and Peter, they were totally off page. Well, Paul says, yeah, we say the same thing, and they said we do, but I am not beholden to them. That is Paul saying there is one gospel, and my gospel is part of it. Peter doesn't say one thing and I say another. There is one gospel. But now the reader might look and say, aha, in uh, verse 11 through 14, Paul talks about the gospel to the circumcised and the gospel to the Gentile. 
doesn't that mean that there are two religious messages that go in different directions? Well, the answer is no. If you, uh, if you look at what's going to come next, um, and I gave you the wrong, the wrong verse reference, but if you look at 11 through 14, Paul takes Peter to task, and he takes him to task because he is living like there are two different Gospels. But when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightful about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So when Paul confronts Peter, he says, There is a gospel. You are a Jew. They are Gentiles. But the gospel compels all types of men to live in a certain way because there is a gospel And we Jews have received that gospel if we're saved. Gentiles have received that gospel if they're saved. And you're not living according to what that means. So it is very, very clear that the Apostle Paul is saying there is one gospel. It is taught by the apostles from Jerusalem. It is taught by me. That one gospel goes out to the circumcised. It goes out to the uncircumcised. It may need different presentations because those of the circumcision are going to know Scripture and kind of think in scriptural categories, whereas Gentiles are going to need a slightly different presentation. But there is one gospel, one great hope. It is for all men. And as he said last Lord's Day, there really isn't any competing Gospels. They say they are, but they're not. What we have here is incredibly, incredibly good news. There is also here, by the way, uh, a testimony to a debate that has run through the Reformed world for a long time. When you evangelize, Do you simply share the Bible with those you are reaching, or do you present evidence and reason? Way back when, in the early part of the 20th century, you had a man named Van Til who taught that when you share the gospel with men, read them the Bible, let them hear the words of God, don't Don't try to explain anything to them, really, because they don't need that. Their problem isn't knowledge. Their problem is that they're rebellious and sinful, and the Bible has its own power. It will convert them. I don't totally disagree with Van Til. The Scripture has a power, uh, and a lot of men, honestly, their problem is that they're rebellious and sinful, and God will work through the words of the Scripture. They don't really not understand it. They understand it all too well. God just needs to hammer them with it. 
But that being said, it's not an either or. When the people of Galatia said, now how, how do I know that you really are speaking for, for God? Paul said, let me show you this evidence. No man as hard and, and, and traditional as me would now be me unless God has changed me. By definition, Paul is showing them evidence for what he has said. So the debate inside the Reformed world is kind of pointless. Does God work through the Scriptures? Absolutely. Should you approach evangelism of lost people without the Scriptures? Of course not. But the religion of Jesus Christ is a lawful religion. It matches natural law and the things that you see. And Paul here clearly uses evidence and says, if you don't believe me, look at the change. Many of us in this church have an old friend who likes to talk about his time before becoming a Christian. He was a professor at the University of Berkeley, which was not a healthy place to be in the 60s. When he was a student in college, he had a professor who constantly evangelized him for, um, you know, the stuff down in Florida. What's that called? The um, Christian scientists? No, not Christian scientists. It's, uh, you know, the Tom Cruise stuff and all that. Well, anyway, that's, well, no, Scientology. Uh, all, all day in class, this guy would evangelize him for Scientology, and he said, you know, he presented it pretty well verbally, but I got to looking at the man's life and realized this man's a mess. There is a testimony in the gospel that it changes lives, it produces repentance. If that's not there, the gospel hasn't taken hold. And there is evidence of Christ because Christ brings life. If you see a man who claims to be religious but he doesn't bridle his tongue or care for widows and orphans in their need, if he doesn't begin to walk according to the heart of God, he can talk it, but he doesn't have it. And Paul is clearly showing us that. Repentance is a major evidence, and it really speaks to the world. The world hears all these competing Gospels all the time. Uh, there is someone who would like to sell you a philosophy the moment you wake up, and they will bombard you with it to the moment you go to sleep. There are a lot of people out there who want to share a Gospel with you. But there is only one Gospel that really changes men, and that is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other. And if an apostle can point to this evidence and say, repentance demonstrates that Jesus got a hold of me, there is certainly nothing wrong with us saying it as well. The proof is in the pudding. And Jesus Christ blesses men, makes them different, makes them walk according to the counsel of God. It is a miraculous 